Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. guys welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zamoda and danny abdeljabar what's up man how are you chilling man as per usual how about yourself i can't complain actually i can't complain a little bit so this is i'm a little bit embarrassed to say it but um since um my girlfriend's bachelorette parties are kind of canceled because of covid in a lot of ways there's not uh-huh. she doesn't have these big group bachelorette parties that she used to have where you know five gals get together and, and watch who's getting a rose or not um i have become the bachelorette party so i'm the main companion and i'm gonna have to admit i actually got pretty into it this is the first season ever i've ever watched and i have i it it has become the guilty pleasure and I missed the batch. I'm missing this episode because of when we're recording. Yep. So we just like basically decided to, you know, record a little bit early and now you can't watch it. I wouldn't worry no. too much about it because I, I've been caught up into 90 Day Fiance for several seasons. So, oh, yeah, yeah, we've we've all got our, you know, things that start off as, you know, the, the girlfriend or the wife or the significant others you know, um, passion project that seeps into our lives in one way or another. Who's your favorite character so far? Uh, the one that got kicked booted. Yeah. The guy who I thought I just heard it from the other room who got, uh, kicked off and it was the guy who I liked the most. So that sucks. But my, um, something I discovered over COVID is that I actually enjoy, uh, really shitty, bad reality television i never watched it before i never really felt inclined to watch it um the last show i ever watched in that mold was survivor which was like years ago which years like the first season right. of survivor my my family and i used to watch it and since then didn't really watch it and then i got sucked into watching like um all these dumb shows on netflix like love is blind yeah i saw that and, show yeah. um, <laughs> See, Love is Blind. There's another one. I think it's called Marriage at First Sight. Oh, yeah, I, saw, I did see that one, too. That one was nuts. Yeah, they're and they're so bad, and they're so depraved in, a, in their nature, where it's almost like a spectacle. You're just, like, watching this vapid group of people interact with each other and also put on a performance at the same time, at the same time trying to... Uh, act like it's reality in some yeah. sense it is real it, it is real but there's yeah but there's a lot of um there's yeah. intervention among producers like yeah. it, you know in like the real housewives or something like that mm-hmm. a producer will get up in, in one of their 
in her ears and be like, don't let her disrespect for you like that. Why don't you go over there and you tell her not to disrespect for you and talk to like that in front of your friends. And then the girl. <laughs> they like rile know, her up and shit. Yeah, they rile her up. The, the woman who hasn't eaten in a day just like gets pissed and, and starts, you know, throwing her amputee leg at the other person. Um, so I know something like hap- like that happened in the show, <laughs> but I get the appeal. I, I enjoy it. You see it. Um, yeah. Now let's, um, I guess transition into what we're going to speak about today, which is, um, ancient Egypt. Ooh, ancient Ooh. Egypt. And, and specifically, I guess we're going to try to do our best attempt in, in, in talking about Egyptian history from the old kingdom to the new kingdom. And um, obviously, this is a history that expands for thousands and thousands of years. So, um, you know, an attempt like this is obviously futile in, in terms of touching everything that's important. But I guess we want to consider uh, continue the trend of, of talking about ancient civilizations for the next uh, few weeks, at the very least until the year ends. And uh, we last left off with ancient Sumer and the Akkadian Empire. So it's just only logical that we talk about ancient Egypt this time. Yep. Um, well, I'm, I'm super pumped uh, in general to talk about Egypt. Egypt is one of my, ancient Egypt is one of my favorite topics just in general. When I was a, when I was a little kid, I used to watch Mummies Alive on TV. And uh, you remember that cartoon show, Mummies Alive? No. no. It was like a, it was like a superhero mummy cartoon show. I would check it out if you haven't seen it already. That might be dating me a little bit, but um, I used to be so pumped about that shit. And I would, you know, actually go out of my way to watch like these really boring history channel documentaries about ancient Egypt, because at the time, you know, like this is pre YouTube and pre like, you know, easily accessible internet. Uh, there wasn't a ton for me to like learn about them. I definitely wasn't going to go to a library. So I would like force myself to watch these history channel documentaries and I learned so much about it and it was still so fascinating, even though the, the topic was, or at least the presentation was like dry bone dry. Um, but I'm pumped because this is going to be a very interesting, you know, juxtaposition against the, the ancient, um, civilization of Sumer, you know, that we just did, uh, the week before, because in a lot of ways they're the same. Um, but in many more, I think they're very, very different. Uh, and we'll definitely touch on, you know, those differences for sure. Um, but there's just so many interesting stories and, you know, in the next, you know, hour, hour and a half that we're talking about this, I, I guarantee you we're going to forget some cool shit, you know? So we might have to do subsequent episodes, uh, in the future about things that we forgot. <laughs> yeah. And, and more importantly, I want to hit, we want to hit on topics that are not commonly discussed. Right. Uh, so you'll see what we we get into as we as we progress it but let's just start with the basics so um ancient egypt so the biggest struggle with ancient egypt is that when i was younger um i never really found this is one of the history topics i didn't find interesting and i think it's because the the presentation like you said could be very dull Mm -hmm. um especially when it's taught to you in a middle school social studies class or whatever yeah um middle middle school history class it's never really presented in a very interesting way um but i guess for the uh just the basic layout so egypt it's it's separated into about six different segments um there's the early dynastic period so when they form then you have the old kingdom you have their intermediate stage 
which is a period of turbulence, then the Middle Kingdom, um, then the Second Intermediate Period, and the New Kingdom, which is a, is when Egypt became an empire. And then you have the post-empire. Now, civilization is made possible in Egypt because the Nile River floods predictably, which allows farmers to plan their harvest around the annual flooding. So this is actually unlike Sumer. The Euphrates and the Tigris River, they, they flood unpredictably. And this is um, actually a, it's almost a different theory of how their civilization started from Sumer. The, the most popular theory on how civilization in ancient Sumer started was the, is the challenge response theory. So right. that people banded together to create civilization because they had to work together to deal with these floods. They had to build irrigations and canals and all this stuff to deal with the constant flooding. In Egypt, it's different because they didn't have that. They were able to plan around the Nile River flooding on a year-by-year basis. So it was easier for them to create a surplus of food. Civilization around the along the Nile River, it goes back thousands and thousands of years, even past the age of the pyramids in, in the, the 2000 BCs. So the reign of pharaohs, that begins when Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt unite. Do you remember this trick question when you were younger? Oh, yeah, totally. This is a trick question I think every single fifth grader has is, you know, they'll, they'll say, um, where is uh, Upper Egypt located and where is uh, Lower Egypt located? Mm-hmm. And they expect you to think Upper Egypt is in the north that is not the case. Right. Upper Egypt is actually in the south of Egypt. Uh, lower Egypt is actually in the north. When they say lower and upper, they mean the that one area is located on a plateau and the other one is located on a on a lower sea level. Mm-hmm. And and more specifically, this the the above has to, has to do with the 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 flow of the Nile, right? So the Nile actually flows from south to north, which for me when I was a kid didn't make any sense. Um, but you know. Now that I'm older, it makes a ton of sense. Rivers flow downhill, and the upper, quote-unquote, uh, Nile River uh, is situated on top of a plateau, on top of a hill. And so everything flows north, which is strange. And as a result, um, uh, what happens is that the geographic idea of north and south for the ancient Egyptians is flipped. Right, their their orientation is flipped. If you looked at one of their maps, they draw it where the, you know, the the, the Nile Delta, um, the the uh, uh, the Delta at the bottom, uh, whose name is eluding me for some strange reason, uh, uh, basically is is in the south. What we would consider the bottom portion of their map, where they're south, uh, and and then they have you know uh, the Upper Nile and Nubia to their north, um, which just you know really has to do with how strongly you know, uh, they orient themselves around that river, right? As you were saying before, they rely on that river and its predictable flooding pattern in order to, you know, eat food. So like literally everything centers around that river, not only just their food, but also literally their perception of, uh, of like cardinal directions was oriented around that as well. Um, which is super, super interesting. And, um, I think uh, just just to add to that note about the predictable flooding patterns, um, there was uh, uh, part of the, the science behind this is that when the 
Nile would flood, it would leave a bunch of silt and like, you know, uh, great fertile uh, uh, dirt onto the land. So fertile that they would literally just toss seeds on the ground, like wherever they wanted and let cattle step on them. And that's how they grow. They wouldn't like specifically, you know, plant like neat and even rows. They would just kind of like willy nilly toss seeds into the dirt. And that's how easily shit would spring up, which is pretty fucking incredible. Uh, I'd like to think of them when in comparison to Sumer as like being a bit softer, you know, like they had that easier life uh, than, than the Sumerians where the Sumerians had to work really hard to like build levees and dams and shit. And the, the Egyptians are just tossing grain seeds all over the floor and like, cool, this will grow eventually. <laughs> uh, it's just such an interesting juxtaposition that, that even down to like their theology, you know, is reflected in that because, uh, in the, in the theological perspective, the afterlife in Sumer is like kind of a dismal place. Whereas the afterlife in Egypt, at least the afterlife for the Pharaohs that get, you know, to <laughs> go to the afterlife, um, it's kind of like a dope place, right? It's like a happy, better than, you know, the current awesome state of life, you know? Um, their perception is super interesting, but kind of getting back to it, um, I think, as you said, Upper and Lower Egypt were two distinct kingdoms until Pharaoh Narmer uh, united them. Um, Narmer was the first pharaoh of that early dynastic period, uh, and then that lasted until about 2686 B.C., and then the old kingdom followed for a little over 500 years until 2686. Um, and the old kingdom was also when all those great pyramids were built. And yes, um, those mountains that you see in Egypt and the, um, the Giza pyramids, those were built in the old kingdom. Mm -hmm. The old kingdom, which makes people think that aliens built them. Well, because how can how them. can these how can <laughs> these primitives build these great mountains? These great and precise mountains that are completely aligned with the stars. This is how you get a history channel, something called the History Channel, <laughs> run marathons on ancient aliens. Is <laughs> because they're so perplexed that ancient peoples are able to actually build monuments and have skilled labor extremely aliens <laughs> there's no way that ancient peoples could have skilled labor or skilled or skilled craft henry to build where something. did they get the granite from there's no granite Whoa. quarries anywhere near those pyramids they dragged them across it, the desert henry uh yeah <laughs> they dragged them across the desert with oxen animal some shit, animal man. labor that's some fucking shit it's 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 I think the ancient alien stuff is, um, it's just, they, the History Channel knows that they can't, they don't make good history biographies, so they just need to go along with, like, creating spookadoo crazy shit. I'm pretty sure, like, paranormal activity stuff is on the History Channel. They'll show, like, a guy go into a house and be like, Oh man, I think I hear something. Oh no, it's an ancient spirit. Oh, like those, those, that's the type of show that's on the History Channel right now. There'll be like ancient spirits, ghosts from the Civil War. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but I, but I digress. Um, but yeah, the old kingdom is when the pyramids are made. And then basically, um, this is a period where political institutions were transformed from decentralized chiefdoms into a theocratic state led by a divine king 
who had total support of of uh, the administrative, the religious, as well as the military institutions. Right, and th- this definitely solidified like the pharaoh as that god king, which in contrast to that early Sumerian high priests model where the high priests were basically running the show, this was a more direct way to assume the power over the production means. You know, basically no one fucks with the high priest in Sumer. Definitely nobody was fucking with the god king. Um, and that's kind of an important um, note for the cultural and theological and even the political development of Egypt, because a lot of it's centralized around, you know, the, the theology of the ru- rulership. And I, I just want to pull this back. So when we're talking about the differences between Sumer and Egypt, um, so one of the major differences as well is that we went over this in our last show, but it's going to shape the theme of this podcast as we progress. So what makes Egypt very different from Sumer? They're both they're both fertile areas. Right. Um, however, Sumer is in the middle of, uh, of a crossroad. So it's very easy to go from one place to another. There's a lot of tr- there's a lot of immigration from one city state to another. There's a lot of conquering uh, by one city city state to another. There's a lot of war going on. Egypt is much different because of its geographic location. And what you Egypt is surrounded by deserts everywhere. There's there's really right. everywhere you look in Egypt, there's a desert. Right. There's a desert when you look towards Libya. There's a desert when you look towards uh, when you look towards the Sinai Peninsula. There's a desert when you look south, and then you have the ocean when you look north. But I mean, the ocean's even far away from where Memphis is located, like the capital of Egypt. Mm-hmm. The biggest difference is that um, there's really no threat of invasion. At least at this period of time, there's not that looming threat of like barbarians going to come into your uh, your your town and village and, and uh, murder <laughs> murder and slaughter and rape everyone in yeah. that town and, and loot everything. They don't have that threat. Yes, there is violence in in ancient Egypt, but not nearly as much violence at this time. Let's just say at this time, there's not nearly as much violence as there's going on in in the states in Su- ancient Sumer. Right. The purpose of the Egyptian army at this time, because um, they do still have a military, was to preserve the state. So they don't really have something like Sargon of Akkad at this time. There's no Sargon of Akkad who's who's going from one city state to another and and creating empires mm-hmm. in the old kingdom. Their military, their they were meant to just preserve the state and put down riots and, and, and things like that, uh, not protect itself from other city-states. And we don't really know the structure of the Egyptian military at this time. The it, A lot of it's unclear, but we do have some conceptions of what it probably looked like and what it actually did. Um, we know that they had some sort of conscription, so... The, the accounts that I've seen is that one percent of the male population would be uh, would would be in the military. One of every ten, uh, but I don't know if that happens right during this old kingdom or if that was later in the. No, that was later. That was later yeah. on when when they start, you know, actually organizing an army. But there's no state centralized like massive army. Um, 
I mean, what what that is is just like kind of a local bodyguard for the pharaoh. Right. The majority of the army that they have at this point is they're just local militia units under the command of like a local baron or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the size of these armies are also very unclear. The old kingdom of Egypt was estimated to have a population anywhere between one to two million people. We have firsthand sources of a commander from what we think is the year 2345 BC recorded that his force was many tens of thousands strong. So he might've been they, flexing a little bit. <laughs> he might've, he might've been flexing because a lot of these sources from the ancient times, a lot of them are not, there's a lot of exact, there's a lot of exaggeration that goes on uh, from when things are written down in ancient times from when they finally get over to our times. Yeah. But what is corroborates some of this evidence though, is that, they had a big population in Egypt, surprisingly big. So, uh, at in this time, it was a it was it was flowing around the two million mark between one point five million to two million people. Mm -hmm. It's pretty it's pretty crazy when you think about it. Yeah, in, I mean, it's in a ton two thousand really in the, in the two thousands over four thousand years ago, and there's also fortresses that were built around twenty two hundred BC in southern Egypt that required at least three thousand men per garrison and there was about there's 20 fortresses that were found so um i guess theoretically mathematically if, if they were to fill all these fortresses that would be a army of about sixty thousand men on their southern frontier alone again we don't know if all these were, were filled or not just saying that they built fortresses that could potentially house that many many soldiers yeah totally Th those numbers are all obviously in question it's, it's so fucking long ago and they did a really poor job at you know recording that that it it gets a little hard to figure out but um i think i think this is kind of like towards the end of that you know old period uh so at that that comes at around the the decline of the old kingdom um and right after came a period known as that first intermediary period which was largely characterized as you said earlier on with a ton of strife there were these two competing dynasties uh within egypt that were fighting each other uh thebes and jesus hera Cleopolis, Heracleopolis. We're going to go with that. Um, anyway, Thebes ends up winning that um, particular uh, long-fought battle. I think they were fighting for like 126 years, which is pretty crazy. Um, you know, 30 years war, eat your heart out. Um, and and then after that, you know, period of conflict, we we get that Middle Kingdom, which was that reunification of Egypt, and it also marked the decline of the absolute power of the Pharaoh that we saw established in the old kingdom um, because we see now a stronger emphasis on on things like nobles and uh priests and like this new role the vizier uh which is like the right hand man like the hand of the king if you will um and uh they all start gaining greater like political power over the governance uh of this um middle kingdom uh and at this time um we actually see Egypt's first uh, known large-scale military conflict. Um, it was against uh, the Nubians, the Nubian kingdom of Kerma, to the geographic south of them, or I guess what they would consider the upper Nile. Um, and uh, so during that like tumultuous period, uh, the first intermediary period, the, the Kerma, the Nubian Kermas, they grew 
phenomenally. They, they flourished in the upper Nile, you know, with basically nobody in their southern border to like bother them. Um, so they, they gained a lot of uh, power um, and and especially resources. And just like almost every Bronze Age conquest, this conflict was definitely started over resources. Um, in particular, Egypt really, really wanted uh, ebony, ivory, and living in perfect harmony. Uh, I had to, sorry. <laughs> um, but also like incenses and gold. Uh, gold at the time was actually just recently deemed as a divine metal, according to the Egyptians. So they really, really liked gold. They wanted more gold. Um, and uh, basically uh, what's interesting about this is that Egypt sought to incorporate uh, Nubia into Egypt rather than flat out raise it. <laughs> um, and they had a ton of fighting. Uh, the Egyptians basically, you know, set up a ton of forts uh, along the, the Nile uh, up into the lower Nubia. And uh, they actually ended up enlisting uh, a ton of local Nubians into their army. They basically paid off their enemies to, <laughs> to join them instead of fight, uh, which is pretty interesting. And, and I would remember this for later uh, because this tends to be their tactic from pretty much here on out. It's just like pay, pay your enemies um, to like fight with you. Um, it's very like a, a Lannister of them. I feel like, you know, like they just like throw out money. Um, and well, there's a lot of gold in that region. Yeah, for sure. So it makes it even more Lannister-esque, the yep. fact that they did have access to a lot of gold. And people want gold. People right. always want gold. Right. Um, because it's... Um, different reasons it's a, for different people. It's, but... it's a commodity. <laughs> well, it does a, lot of, it does a lot of things. It could build things. It's jewelry. At right. that time, too, it had a lot of different functions. Right. But for the Egyptians so it, specifically, it was just like a divine... It was like a theological thing. They really, really liked it for, like theological purposes which leads me back to the alien thing a lot of people suggest that the aliens want our gold for their like microchips and shit it's possible that that's what they were doing but that's neither here nor there i don't want to go down that rabbit hole just yet um, <laughs> um where was i yeah okay so they they um they set up shop in lower nubia and uh the remaining kerma that are in upper nubia they get them to play ball somehow like just be, be nice um, and basically Egypt focused its attention after that part on Canaan, uh, in the Sinai, Sinai Peninsula, where what would be present day Israel or Palestine. Um, and, uh, afterwards, uh, there was a relatively peaceful, uh, system of migration between the Canaanites into Egypt for a while. Also remember that that'll pop up again. Um, but basically, you know, the late middle period, uh, um, in the late middle kingdom, I should say, uh, there was like a series of irregular flooding, uh, which basically undermined or <laughs> to borrow a phrase eroded <laughs> the already like, um, declining power of the Pharaoh, which, uh, led to the next intermediate period. Um, again, remember the Pharaoh had set himself up as this divine God ruler and, you know, their gods were all centralized around the Nile and the Nile brought the life and the predictable flooding of the Nile was basically like a direct result of, you know, evidently the Pharaoh, right? Because he was a God King. And as soon as that started getting a little wonky, I don't know, global warming or some shit, um, basically it, it undermined his, his authority on that subject. And, and then that led to a bit of a, a bit of a fight in the second intermediary period. So, um, with this 
intermediate period. And these intermediate periods are always signals from historians or, or the cons- it's the consensus among historians that during these years, um, there is a disruption in the uh, – there was a disruption in society, like a like a like a decline in the stock market type. Right. Um, but this is actually when things get really interesting in this area. So through now, from when they started, they first started um, settling among the Nile. They've lived in relative isolation or without a threat due to their natural barriers with the deserts. Mm-hmm. Now, during this time, they're finally conquered so they're conquered by a group and they're going to be conquered throughout there a lot egypt is <laughs> yeah. the, egypt is conquered a lot through going forward going forward it's going to be a, a place where people want to settle and go and uh people are going to try to bring into their imperial grasp when you start talking about um not only the people will automatically think that romans and the Greeks, which is true, but, but not till which, like which later. Is, later which on. is true, but also the ancient, the, the Persians um, absor- uh, conquered it, as well as the Assyrians conquered it. Mm-hmm. But the very first people to conquer Egypt yeah. is a group called the Hyksos, and this is a, this group was a, basically a they're kind of an irrelevant peoples. I don't know if that's fair to say they're. They're not. It's not some great civilization that's coming down and conquering Egypt. Um, yeah, they're they're a they, bunch of like unknowns, you know, like kind of randos in in like NPC characters basically during the yeah. Time. But um, the, they're they're far behind economically as well as culturally as a, as far as right. civilization is uh, behind the Egyptians. What what happens is that. They are much further along in military technology because they're coming from um, they're coming from from Asia, where the the transfer of weapons is taking place. You know where the transfer of military technology, such as the horse drawn chariot, such as, such as the composite bow, are taking place. Right, and and I think you know what's what's important. You know, on top of just the the military you know, um, advantages that they had was, was also the fact that they were capitalizing on the turmoil, uh, that was happening in Egypt at the time, um, caused by that irregular flooding that we were talking about, right? A lot of people's confidence in the Pharaoh had eroded pretty, pretty hard. Uh, and as such, you know, it was kind of ripe for, uh, a little bit of a, a shakeup and they end up setting up shop in, uh, lower Egypt and created the city state of Avaris. Uh, and eventually conquered pretty much the entire Lower Nile, uh, narrowing that Egyptian kingdom and sandwiching it between them and and the uh, uh, the Nubian um, Kerma uh, to the Upper Nile to the south. Um, but some speculate actually that the Hyksos were uh, comprised mostly of Canaanites, um, maybe even some Israelites as well, uh, who exploited that lax immigration policy that we were talking about earlier uh, that uh, Egypt had on its Sinai border. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, this is also part of the reason why they just kind of came out of nowhere, because evidently they had been coming out of nowhere for decades. <laughs> so they had been already immigrating a bunch of people with those sentiments. Uh, and then later, Nubia got super brave and jumped on that bandwagon, and they recaptured parts of Lower Nubia that the Egyptians took from them, um, as well as all those fancy new forts that they set up. 
and they also took the most productive gold mines of the ancient world with them. So Egypt really got hit from both sides, and it was because of these Hyksos people. And again, you know, I think you're you're about to talk a little bit more about their their technology, but they totally spanked the Egyptians. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so what what basically happened is that, um, like I said earlier, they were just, they were much, they had uh, access to the city-states in Mesopotamia and other parts of Asia where they were fighting wars constantly and they had developed um, they, they had developed weapons that went a lot further and a lot when were a lot more advanced than um, anything that the Egyptians had. So the Egyptian army was an infantry force with with bowmen, spearmen, and archers. Their their primary thing they used to kill people was a mace. And right. A mace is the oldest weapon ever. It's just right. a club. It's a it's stick just with a, a rock. It's on a it. stick with a rock on it. Mm-hmm. What they didn't have, they didn't have composite bows. On the other hand, the Hyksos, they were fully loaded. Right. So they had chariots, they had composite bows. Not only did they have composite bows, but they had quivers mm-hmm. to reload faster. And the difference is, we talked about this last episode, but the difference in, in the kill range between a composite bow and then a, and then a simple bow is about a hundred yards or so right, it's like double <laughs> it's about it's yeah. about double yeah. like you can't really kill somebody with a simple primitive bow from the length of a football field right with it's a just composite gonna hit you, bow, you bounce can't. off yeah it's just gonna hit you it's not gonna pierce any armor if you have anything it's just gonna fucking bounce off 
and just not do it's not going to do anything it's gonna be annoying it's gonna be it's gonna be like an annoying thing if if you're from a super far distance that could just if if, that's just like different imagine if you're going up with someone against a different range of rifle like that it would be annihilated right it's not like a a barrett 50 cal versus like a like a little nine millimeter handgun you know um they, they also had um axes that could penetrate armor um, right, we we're talking about those the, socket axes from Sumer. The, the Hyksos, yeah. the Hyksos wore—I finally remembered how to pronounce it. The Hyksos—they they wore helmets, and they and they uh, had body armor. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem was that in, in Egypt there weren't pressures on on society to create more sophisticated uh, military technology because uh, because they had the luxury of having these protective deserts that kept people from invading. Right. Because just think about the difference in that firepower. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, and also another point is that at this point the Egyptians had never seen a horse before, right? Let alone Ever. a chariot. <laughs> yeah, like they had never. There had not been a horse in Egypt at that time. Can you imagine? Maybe there had shit? been you just a, see, like, horse, a fucking but, horse. You don't know what a horse is, and then suddenly you yeah, see a horse seeing, and it's pulling a dude on a on a chariot, and they're just chasing after, you and you're like, "What the fuck is that?" Yeah, imagine seeing this this steed that's running forty miles per hour. Like, how the hell are you going to catch it? Um, they may have had camels, they had oxen, but they did not have horses. And um, for the next century, the the Hyksos took control of um, Upper Egypt, and a collection of, of princes took control of the like local baron princes types. They just kind of a confederation. They took control of the lower part of Egypt. Right. And I think the, the interesting part about these Hyksos folks was that their rule uh, basically completely adopted the Egyptian culture. Um, and this is interesting because it happens a lot when Egypt gets conquered. The people, t- you know, like set up shop there to like take over and then most of them either allow them to keep being normal Egyptian or they themselves start adopting the culture, which is pretty fascinating. It's like Egypt is so cool that, you know, you you go there and then you stay and then you become yourself Egyptian. But um, what's interesting about that is that they they followed the same religions. They, you know, their rulers uh, portrayed themselves pretty much exactly as the prior Egyptian pharaohs did. They built the same types of temples. They built the same types of like tombs and stuff like that. Um, but the Hyksos were eventually overthrown by a resurgence of that Theban dynasty in that like upper Nile area that they were still holding on to. Um, but their, the Hyksos's um, impact on the Egyptian empire was very profound um, because prior to the Hyksos, they, as you pointed out, they never really had to worry about that foreign incursion part. I'd also add that you know, not only did they not have to worry about a foreign incursion because of like the natural barriers, like deserts everywhere, but they just didn't really care very much, right? They they pretty much let Canaanites spill over their border, you know, without completely unchecked for decades because they didn't they like that wasn't a part of their mindset. Their mindset wasn't like let's protect ourselves from foreign invaders. Their mindset was just like let's live life and stuff. Um, which is like just so much different um, from the Sumerian mindset, and I think what was what was interesting about that is that they had to they revert they were basically like almost at a point of pacifistic at, almost prior to the the 
Hicksoak's invasion. Right. It's so funny how I mispronounce words uh, interchangeably. Hexos, like, Hexos. The Hexos, even when I pronounce it the correct, when I learn how to pronounce things the correct way, I just <laughs> keep on pronouncing it. Yeah. I just don't know why my brain works like that, but um, it may just be related to speech patterns I have. <laughs> but yeah, they turn them into, basically what happens is that they have to change their foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but Egypt is in, is, is in turmoil for about a 200-year period. So they start changing when they have this prince named Amos the first who drive these the Hyksos out of northern Egypt and they eventually unify Egypt again right um, this is the 18th dynasty by the way so there's um, I guess there's a debate among this there's 30 dynasties in Egypt and some some historians some say there's really 31 suck, and then some say there's 32 like you said earlier other empires they will conquer egypt and they will declare themselves a pharaoh so i guess it's if they declare those conquering dynasties uh real legitimate pharaohs or not mm-hmm. like if you if you actually uh would consider uh, cleopatra a pharaoh or not i would or if you would yeah i would it's a different age of egypt but it's still egypt it's just ptolemy egypt the ptolemy was one of alexander the great's generals mm-hmm. and when alexander the great when he conquered all of asia he he egypt was one of the first things that he took and egypt they had had some really bad revolts against the persian empire where allegedly the 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 persians did some pretty brutal things to the egyptians so they really hated them Mm -hmm. but that was part of alexander's empire when it was at its max but alexander died as a young man so his you know everyone knows the story that his empire was split up by his generals and the um, by the way the 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 p and Ptolemy is silent. It's just Ptolemy. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks for calling me out, bro. <laughs> Ptolemy. <laughs> Ptolemy. Anyway, but that's that's so the the that's, Alexander we're, we're, the Great we're, we're stuff is like much much farther along, like like kind of back into the new empire stuff. Yeah, um, I, I digress. That's that's um, about. 1500 years away from where we're at right now <laughs> yeah. but the so so the new empire um so almost the first drives um the hyksos out of northern egypt and then after that basically there is a series of warrior pharaohs that become the head of state egyptian leadership has a massive shift in their mentality so before they were invaded they weren't concerned about foreign threats for more than 2000 years egypt had been isolated pretty much sealed off by deserts. They lived as if there were no others in the land. And it was the occupation of their homeland by foreigners that created this fear of invasion within Egyptian culture. So after the kicking the Hyksos out, Egyptian pharaohs pursued a a new foreign policy. You know, they had a shift in their psychology. Um, They had this paranoia about being surrounded. And they continue to press outwards from from their borders to establish a series of, um, I guess, weak states that would surround Egypt and act as a potential buffer from invasion. Mm-hmm. The most famous of these uh, pharaohs was Thutmose III. And what's interesting about this guy is that we only found out about him recently. 
Um, it wasn't until Napoleon occupied Egypt and uh, the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, people were able to read about him. Um, so this is someone who wasn't really even known by the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. But what we do know is that he was probably born around 1504 BC, allegedly. Allegedly. Like I always say allegedly when it comes to ancient sources. Um, so at the very least, he came a thousand years after Sargon of Akkad. Right. The first um, major military commander to, to forge an empire. And he has a pretty interesting backstory. So his father was Thutmose II. Surprise, surprise. Um, his father died when he was an infant. But his stepmom, she becomes pharaoh until he turned 22 years old. And um, allegedly he had been a commander in the Egyptian army since he was 16. Which I find well, hard to believe. <laughs> which, which is, which, yeah, it is kind of hard to believe, but, you know, like 16 could be like the new 26 back then. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I feel like maybe. there's like a 10 year slash in age. Um, people become men earlier. Um, there's rumors that he actually uh, had his stepmom killed um, in order to take power. They weren't exactly, they were kind of rivals. She disappeared. But who knows? But what, what Thutmose III really accomplishes is that he establishes a real first-rate professional army. So what he does, he starts implementing things like the chariot, the composite bow, the penetrating axe, um, the sickle sword, the helmet, armor. All these things that were being used in Samaria, he started to implement into his, um, into his army. Mm -hmm. And the the goal of of Egyptian foreign policy at this time um, so at this point in history there were new and, and powerful states that were emerging so you had the kingdom of Mitanni from northeastern Syria who had client states that extended down to southern Syria and Lebanon you had the Hittites who were located in modern day Turkey um, the goal of the Egyptian defense policy was to prevent any major power or coalition of Asiatic city-states from assembling um, an alliance powerful enough to threaten Egypt. And what this required, hear, hear me out right here, this required Egypt to have the dominant presence on the Palestinian land bridge. Oh man, the land bridge. The land bridge. <laughs> uh. So basically what they wanted to do, what Thutmose III thought was necessary is that he wanted to have um, a bunch of buffer states of surrounding Egypt because there is all these other city-states that were rising at this time and a lot of powerful ones, mind you. A lot of wealth is going on in this period or is being transferred among these ancient cities. Like these ancient cities are no joke back in back in um 11 1140 bc like or no further than that um 1400 bc these ancient cities are very rich there's these trade routes that are going uh sophisticated road systems canal mm -hmm. systems these rivers are connecting these city states and th this it's been centuries and centuries and centuries of uh accumulated wealth that's being transferred all across 
um, Asia and even parts of Greece and North Africa. Right. Um, We're talking about like a thousand get, years after the Akkadian Empire. <laughs> yeah, this, there's, there's a lot of prosperity that's right. being built right now at this time. Most people don't have an appreciation for the level of sophistication that these ancient civilizations really had because they had a lot of it. They had they had a tremendous amount. Just look at the the, the structures that were built um, by during the this aliens. time um, by by the aliens. Um, Thutmose the third also was a really big builder. Um, he didn't build the pyramids like the pyramids of Giza. I mean, there were pyramids built all throughout Egyptian history, right. but lesser um, pyramids. He, he built a lot of temples and shit like that. Mm -hmm. But um, the goal of the Egyptian defense policy was to make these little buffer states everywhere. Um, and it, it really required them to have a strong presence in these areas. So Thutmose, what he did is that he upgraded the military technology, but he also restructured the Egyptian military itself. So conscription went from 1% to 10% of the male population. Mm -hmm. So these conscripts were, were, were being trained by professional officer corps um, you know, they, they had kind of like the modern day, uh, secretary of defense as a minister of war, they had army councils, they had a general staff, the army was organized like a modern military. So they had the, the their, their, their field army was, was organized by, by divisions. And, you know, these divisions had, uh, were separated by infantry, by archers, by chariots. Um, you know, and they're, they were pretty large as well. So these divisions had about 6,000 people and he would have divisions between uh, two to four divisions in a battle, four in a major battle. And these divisions not only included, you know, 6,000 men, but it, it also include things like logistical and, and personal support. So people to help transfer stuff, right. people to, f to feed and supply uh, medics, medical like yeah. medic, mm -hmm. medics and things like that. So he had all those, uh, all the personnel to help support a military logistically infantry. So the infantry, it was organized into regiments of 200 men. So each regiment was identified by the type of weapon it carried. And then units were further identified as being filled with either uh, fresh recruits, trained men, or elite shot troops. So they had kind of like a special forces group in there. And then these uh, regiments were, were commanded by standard bearers. Um, and then below him was a rank called the greatest of 50, who was kind of like a platoon leader. Mm -hmm. And then below the, who would report to the platoon leader would be a, a, a the captain of a, of a troop who were like, um, I guess, brigade commanders who would report up to the greatest of 50. So there's like a, a lot, there's this level, this Sargon didn't have this. No. This is way more sophisticated than anything that was coming out of Samaria at this time. Yeah. This is reaching a whole new level. Right. This is a le legit army that's putting 20,000 soldiers out on the field. It's um, a very sophisticated that, regiment. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's incredibly sophisticated and you're not seeing things. Um, you have not seen things like this prior to to Thutmose III. A lot of people th consider Thutmose III the greatest military, the most revolutionary military thinker of all time. Like, he, he's he's up there. Like, when you're going to say the greatest of all time, you're going to say Alexander the Great, Hannibal, um, and then a lot of people throw in Thutmose III. 
evolved because of all the dynamic of changes. Of the ancient world, that is. Yeah. Of, the, mm-hmm. of, the, of the ancient world. Because at this time, the Egyptian army becomes the dominant power of of the Near East. Like the the dominant, like they become the United States of America. They're mm-hmm. basically the Roman Empire. They become the dominant pow- military power. So we have a transition from the pacifist to the people who are um, isolationist. I don't like using that word because people call me an isolationist. <laughs> to you have these people who are not used to getting their hands bloody, or at least fighting outside of their borders, to a incredibly sophisticated military at this time. Is it in a, in a, in a in the most authorities undefeated in battles. So I forget the number of campaigns that this guy fights, but it's a lot of campaigns. He's fighting campaigns until for, for 40 years, basically from when he's like 16 to from allegedly 16 from when he's uh, like 60, when he retires, I'm not sure the exact age, but it's like a 40 year period of him being a serious military commander. And he's fighting a lot of, he's fighting a lot of wars and he doesn't lose once. Is an undefeated record. Like even Alexander the Great has some losses. Caesar has losses. Um, Hannibal was undefeated until he lost his final battle. Um, so this guy is an undefeated, you know, warrior boy. I do want to. I do want to put a little bit of tamper on Thutmose because he was pretty dope. But one thing I do want to give our listeners some context to is that the Egyptians were a bit braggadocious. Uh, we see evidence of this um, in the way that they portray themselves in statues and in like uh, paintings in their tombs. They are oftentimes depicted as having, you know, real big muscles and like lean and fit. But when <clears throat> when scientists have taken their, you know, mummies and done scans on them, they're finding a lot of them were obese. <laughs> a lot of them were you know, um, kind of out of shape. A lot of them were, some of them were deformed. Uh, uh, um, King Tut, notably. A lot of them are the product of, a lot of them were uh, the products of incest. Right. Uh, King Tut had like scoliosis and among other things. And I guess the reason why I'm pointing this out is that um, Thutmose, we get a lot of this information from the inscriptions written by Thutmose, right? So it's it's not like necessarily corroborated against a a ton of different places. So when when we think of this, and we think of this guy that's, you know, been a commander since 16 and like maybe goes like 40 years or something like that, commanding without a loss, that's probably not true. (laughs) You know, that's that's probably definitely not true. Um, That's not to underscore the fact that he's like, pretty fucking badass but i'm sure that he lied a lot about his record it it's it comes from the hieroglyphics so whatever they're finding whatever he wrote about whatever whatever the pr whatever (laughs) whatever the pr writes um but regardless egypt was was on they they were the dominant power undeniable there was Mm -hmm. undeniably the dominant power of this of this period of time and thutmose was their greatest pharaoh king um their fit their warrior pharaoh and um i mean alexander the great and julius caesar i mean do you i don't believe everything about alexander the great like his pr no. cabinet, like that came out during his campaigns mm-hmm. yeah he was a great commander and but um 
I don't believe everything that comes out about like all his deeds about like running straight into to uh, leading cavalry charges and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I mean, some of it's probably true, but I don't. I, I looking at like the modern context and being able to see propaganda live as it starts. Like, yeah. Makes it easy for you to understand what the truth might have looked like in the ancient past, you know? Exactly. Especially when it comes to ancient um, sources demonizing the like enemies and like opposing foes. Yeah. Because if we're able to say things like um, Saddam Hussein's um, army was pulling babies out of incubators and, and, um, and weapons of mass destruction. Right imagine i would imagine the same type of propaganda went on at those in the ancient world as well Mm -hmm. especially when it was basically state run like the the state would be they didn't have media they barely had writing so it was like yeah it was like hearsay like write my story (laughs) like (laughs) chisel my story into my tomb wall (laughs) write my story (laughs) i need like um 300 uh, at the end leonidas has that guy's like you need to live you need to go on and write my story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but i but i digress um we do know about like their their administrative formations at the very least the sure. things that they've wrote down and and how they structured their their military um the other so the other part of their army in addition to their infantry their 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 uh light and heavy infantry i guess they didn't really have heavy infantry but they had um cavalry they had well they had archers and they had um you know their guys with with axes and swords and shit like that um was their chariot their their chariot squad so uh the chariots were an elite striking force you can kind of get a sense of that because the pharaoh was typically depicted as leading the chariot charge and all these egyptians and all these egyptian carvings and and uh and sculptures you always see the pharaoh like tall and mighty mm-hmm. on the chariot which again is also um, probably bullshit because you know you do that you do enough chariot charges and you're going to get fucked up one day well they're not I doubt Thutmose is leading a, a charge, but he's in the back coordinating things. Yeah, sitting he's, on a he's, nice he's little a tactic, throne, eating some a grapes. Tactician, a tactician at the very least. Yeah. Um, but we, we do know about like how this stuff was organized. So it was organized in a squadron of 25 chariots, and each chariot was commanded by a charioteer uh, of the residence. That was the title, the charioteer of the residence. So they're kind of like a staff sergeant or a, or a tank commander. Um, I guess a, a tank commander would typically be a staff sergeant, I guess. Mm. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, military folks. But um, larger units of, of uh, 50 and 150 chariots would be assembled, and they would also be deployed in constant concert with larger ground units. And then logistically, it was supported by mobile repair stations and parts depots. So not only were they bringing the chariot, but they were able to change the tires, <laughs> change the tires. But you got to put this in this context. We're talking about people on foot because mm-hmm. what was interesting about the Egyptians, they never really had cavalry. They had the chariot squads, but they didn't have cavalry. They didn't have like, you know, none of these sources say like, oh, yeah, there was a cavalry charge from the 
it's all infantry or, or chariot. So they were traveling these long distances, marching on foot. And, and when they're when you're marching from Memphis, um, which is like I don't know, maybe like thirty or forty miles, or maybe more than that, sixty miles south of modern day Cairo or so. Um, I, don't I don't know, know the, the exact, exact distance, but it's it's but, well up into the middle of the Nile as far as that that kingdom goes. And then if you want to march all the way out into the Sinai Peninsula, that shit is fucking far. That shit is far. We're talking about 150 miles to get to the Sinai, and then if you want to get to Gaza from from um, Memphis, then it's probably around 250 to 300 miles long of, of march. And there, and this is a hot fucking desert. This right. isn't like marching through France. This mm-hmm. is marching through. It's the same desert that brutal, the Israelites got lost in for 40 years. You know. <laughs> yeah, a brutal, a brutal hot desert that right. will kill you if you don't have water right so logistically the, the march of those soldiers with food and with water um to bring all of your equipment and all of your stuff and to have these deep uh, have to be able to create these depots it's just an amazing accomplishment it's a it's an amazing feat the fact that they're striking this area from afar is pretty incredible that they're able to logistically move all this stuff to asia if they're able to go over the land bridge <laughs> through palestine into places like syria into places like lebanon. turkey into iraq lebanon and just mm-hmm. project power and not have any other um rival really right like competitive rival like to, to, to be that far ahead and this is a wealthy wealthy time within antiquity like this period of time is before um you know the major collapse of society happened right now um so on the battlefield um Egyptian forces deployed chariots to act as a screen for infantry. So they would engage using long-range composite bows. So usually in a chariot, it'd be a guy in a bow and a back just moving around, just fucking with a really powerful bow and just shooting people. And um, they would just start killing at a distance, and then um, they would... If there was like a, a, a chink in the armor or something like that, then they would uh, smash up enemy formation. And if the enemy gave ground, I guess they would use reserve chariots that would be used to just like further exploit weaknesses because they had reserve forces as well. Like they would sometimes build these things or put things together in the middle of a battle. So they would just combine that with infantry units and then that would just further disrupt shit going on. And it would just, it was just a, like a hammer, the Egyptian military. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that's really interesting about this is that their chariot, two men could carry it over a stream. So it was super light. Mm-hmm. So it's like a bobsled. Actually, right. no, a bobsled would be a lot heavier. It was like a, I don't know, something that two people can carry together. It was fucking light, together. yeah. <laughs> it, was a light, it was a light thing that you could carry across a stream. Right, so the two dudes riding in the chariot can get out of the chariot and pick it up and go across a stream. But yeah, but the, the, the mobility allowed a, a, uh, a light, maneuverable chariot 
to be used as a uh, as as a as a reserve for the first time really in warfare. So these are just like major um, logistical achievements and, and uh, upgrades within in, in the ancient battlefield. Like prior, it was just like okay, we were able to um, create a. Uh, units of infantry and as and long range bow um let's just go shower them with bows and then let's go uh poke them with spears poke them with spears and axes and, and hack them all to death mm-hmm. like what thutmose the third art what he organized was the the really the precursor of what the great ancient armies are going to turn into when the assyrian army and the Assyri- the assyrian empire and the Persian Empire, and then eventually the Greeks and the Romans um, start building these like incredibly huge, fifty thousand, sixty thousand large field armies. Like he kind of sets that tone as like the innovator of that of that uh, period of history. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. So um, one of the big things in in history that we uh, are taught is the Battle of Armageddon. This is probably his most famous battle. So it's the Battle of Megiddo. The Battle of Megiddo. So the... It's a perfect example of a modern army in battle. And um, so I just want to, I have, I was reading a book and I just want to read this from, um, the name is Richard Gabriel. And he'll be able to say it a lot more. So I just want to quote him on his chapter on this. The first and most famous is his campaign against the city of Megiddo, where 34 Canaanite and Matini princes were gathering with their armies as a prelude to attacking Egypt. In April 1481 BC, an Egyptian army comprised of two combined arms corps, each having 5,000 infantry and a chariot brigade of 500 vehicles, marched out of Egypt along coastal roads towards Gaza. The army advanced to, to Megiddo was divided into four operational phases, each influenced by time, terrain, and enemy reaction. First, Thutmose had to move his army from Egypt to Gaza. The army covered the 125 miles from Sile to Gaza in 10 days, a rate of march of about 12 miles a day. Thutmose remained in Gaza only overnight, ordering the army back on the march the next day. The second phase required traversing the terrain from Gaza to Yemen, modern Yemen. This is in Israel, not, not Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Yehem. Um, a distance of 80 miles, much of it across the open Sharon Plain, mm-hmm. perfect for an Asiatic chariot attack. Yemen was a key road yeah. junction controlling the entrance to the Aruna Road that led over the Carmel Mountains to Megiddo and the 
Draylon Plain, the classical Greek name for the Jezreel Valley. The danger in the movement from Gaza to Yehem lay in the possibility of discovery by Asiatic reconnaissance units or even a collision with the advanced units of the Asiatic main force making its way across the Sharon Plain en route to attack Egypt. Under these circumstances, security of the Egyptian force was paramount, and Thutmose covered the 80 miles in 90 days. When the Egyptian army arrived at Yehem, it had been on the march for 19 days. Phase 3 required the army to move over the Carmel Mountains and gain the open plain text to the ridge op- upon which Megiddo sat without being attacked. Worn down by enemy harassment along the way, or ambushed as it exited the mountains on to the, the plain. Only after Thutmose's army forced the exits and gained the Esdrelon plain could it bring the enemy to battle in phase four. Thutmose spent three days at Yehem, during which his reconnaissance units explored the routes leading to Megiddo and discovered the disposition of the enemy force on the Esdrelon plain. These roads led from Yehem to the valley, one led to Tanakh at the southern end of the valley and was heavily guarded by an enemy chariot force. The second led through Aruna and debauched less than a mile in front of Megiddo itself. It too was heavily guarded. A third road led to De- Jephthi, some five miles from the city. On 18- the May 18th, the Egyptian army left Yehem and entered the Wadi Ara through the Carmel Mountains connecting to the Aruna Road. It marched 13 miles to the village of Aruna and then encamped. Below in the valley, some 300 enemy chariots blocked the exit at Aruna and another 600 guard, guarded the exit from Tanakh. The two forces were only four miles apart and could easily reinforce one another. It was only when the Egyptian army arrived at Aruna that the enemy finally learned of his presence. Thutmose had successfully achieved strategic surprise. But the tactical problem of how to get his army from Aruna onto the Esdrelon plain without being attacked when it exited the ridge remained. Egyptian reconnaissance units had discovered a narrow path running left off the Aruna road that debauched on the plain near Kina Brook, about a mile from Megiddo itself. The path was narrow, steep, and ran six miles from Aruna to its exit on the valley floor. Thutmose proposed to his officers that his army take the path and arrive outside the city and behind both enemy forces, blocking the other exits. To a man, his senior generals opposed the plan as too dangerous. The 22-year-old Thutmose, now commanding his first major operation, overruled them and ordered his army down the path on the morning of May 19th. With himself in the lead, the van of the army reached the plane in three hours, around noon, and began to deploy for a battle on the plain using the Kina Brook as a defensive obstacle to the enemy attack. Outmaneuvered and surprised, the enemy chariot detachment at Aruna and Tanakh exits deployed rearward to defend the city. The the Battle of Megiddo took place the next day, greatly outnumbered and forced into the narrow tactical box by Thutmose, the deployment of his infantry on the wings, the enemy chariots, chariots clashed with the Egyptians in the center while the Egyptian infantry pressed inward from the flanks. Squeezed between the two combat elements, the enemy broke and fled, some taking refuge inside the city, others fleeing behind the city on the road to Hazar, 20 miles, a 20-mile distance. Thutmose placed Megiddo under sage, and on the 27th of June, 66 days after the Egyptians had left Egypt, the city surrendered. 
to capture Megiddo place control of the key co communication routes from Egypt to uh, ugh. sorry, cotton mouth to to Canaan, Syria, and Mesopotamia, firmly in Egyptians' hands. Thutmose now turns his attention to get things to get in control to get getting control of the Lebanon coastal ports as he began the second phase of his grand strategy. Nuts. Nuts, man. I mean, the, just the sheer distances that he covered with that many men in that time. I mean, like, you can't make this shit up. It's, it's pretty nuts. No, it's, it's, it's an insane accomplishment. In, in that terrain as well. So we're not only talking about um, crossing deserts, but the going up mountains, canyons, and fucking crazy shit. Going up canyons with another part of that, as well as that, I believe they were legit. So they knew, thought most knew that, like, hey, listen, I can't fucking bring all this shit. I can't walk from Memphis to to Gaza and lug all this shit with my army. I need to find a better way to do this. It's also taking too long. So he also used the Navy. Like, he created a Navy that would just logistically... Ship stuff over, right? Ship stuff over from mm -hmm. one place to another. Because, I mean, it's easier. You can you can go by boat a little bit quicker, and it's not as taxing to carry things. You're not going to have, like... Because I'm sure a lot of animals die on the way from from one place to another, especially when you're traveling long distance and... It's it's just a big pain in the ass to, to march through the desert. So this guy just, I don't want to say invented, but he was a pioneer in military uh, logistics. For sure. That um, I don't think people talk enough about. Yeah, Am Amazon would be jealous. Amazon? <laughs> yeah, logistics. Oh, yeah. Ha, <laughs> ha, ha. Ah, um, but yeah, Thumos was a G. Um, I think he's, I think he's my favorite Pharaoh. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's, and we haven't even talked about Ramses the second yet. So that's, that's pretty, it, that's saying a lot that Thutmos is your favorite. Thutmos is my favorite. Um, Ramses the second is also, I think that Ramses the second is kind of a, there's some things why don't you give me your opinion on Ramses II? Well, I mean, I guess I can't really talk about Ramses II without talking about like the stuff that led up to Ramses II because there's there's a lot of really interesting um, kind of stuff, and there's also uh, Horemheb who came just before Ramses I, and Horemheb was also a military commander who was also pretty G, maybe not as much as Thutmose, but. Also pretty good, but they there's a lot of people that that like laid the groundwork for Ramses the second that I think is important to talk about and and I guess for that we got kind of have to talk about that Mitanni again uh, who were one of those neighboring city states one of those very wealthy neighboring city states that <clears throat> were situated in that like uh, 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 northern or northeastern Syria um, area and for a little bit of time the mitanni and the egyptians actually formed kind of a quasi alliance with each other um and of course the way that they did that they basically just mar cross married each other <clears throat> and in most cases it was like a, a a female mitanni going over 
to Egypt to marry some Egyptian pharaoh um, or high priest or something like that. And uh, the most famous cross uh, marriage was speculated to be between uh, the pharaoh Akhenaten and Nefertiti, uh, who may have been a Mitanni, but probably more likely she was an alien. Have you ever seen that elongated skull of hers in all of her fucking like pictures and and pictures and mummy? <laughs> Anyway. Yes, I have. Oh, wait. I, one thing I forgot to talk about, Th- uh, uh, Thutmose III. Did he also have an uh, elongated skull? His mummy, if you look at it, he's giving a thumbs up. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. That's I don't cool. know if like he was mummified that way or well, probably. He might, he he might have put, been. He, he might have been because. Probably of, placed that way. Like just a thumbs up. No, no. He might, he might have been because, um, as I pointed out before, um, King Tut was buried with a boner. Oh. Yeah, like he had an artificial boner. Actually, I might be um, kind of uh, jumping the gun a little bit. I didn't talk about that yet. Um, <laughs> um, we'll talk about the boner later. Uh, but they, so the Mitanni and the and the Egyptians, right? They had this like uh, uh, good relationship going in. They had a really strong trust between each other uh, for the Bronze Age, um, so much so that like one of the great kings of Mitanni. Um, was said to have visited Egypt. And that was like a huge no, no in the bronze age. Like you don't, if you're the leader of a city state or like a, or like an empire, you don't leave your empire because if you do, you're going to get murked, you know? Uh, and it's like very easy to cause instability in your land if you do that. So the fact that uh, evidently, allegedly a great Matana King visited Egypt, that's pretty exceptional. Um, but not too long after, um, there was a lot of infighting among the Mitanni, and uh, they basically started getting closed in on by, you know, some uh, regional uh, um, rivals uh, on both sides. So uh, specifically, I'm talking about the Hittite Empire and the Assyrians, who uh, I hope that we get to cover uh, in a future episode because they're also really, really cool. Um, but back to Akhenaten, though, you know, the dude who's, um, you know, married to Nefertiti. Uh, he basically wrecked the traditional pantheon of the Egyptian gods and tried to get everybody to worship just one god uh, called Aten. Um, and he had his hands full doing that. So either he didn't want to help or could not help the Mitanni when they were in need because they were being crushed by the uh, Assyrians and the Hittites from both sides. That part is kind of unclear. I like to believe that maybe he was just like, he didn't care. <laughs> like all he wanted everyone to do is like switch, you know, to a monotheistic religion. Um, that's also just in and of itself is a crazy ass, you know, topic. And we can go for a while on the, like the theological and the cultural impacts that that could have had and why that, that was such a huge break. Um, but uh, after Akhenaten died, uh, we get King Tut. Uh, so a couple of fun facts about King Tut. He only lasted nine years. He was a young boy. He died probably of malaria. And here's that last fun, fun part. He was mummified with a boner. And uh, from some accounts that I read, it might not have even been his own boner. Like they got a different boner from someone else, like a bigger one to make him look bigger. Because a young boy is always going to want to have some boner fun or some shit. Uh Give a give a a, a young kid a, a pharaoh ship, and that's that's how he wants to be buried, which I think is hilarious. <clears throat> um, but Tut, so, so he he actually um, 
started undoing a lot of the work that his dad did, Akhenaten, um, and he started bringing back that pantheon of gods to Egypt. Um, but he still didn't help the Mitanni, and the Mitanni eventually fell to Assyria. Why am I talking all about this? Well, the reason why I'm talking about this is because after King Tut, there was like a really brief like um, pharaohship by King Tut's grandfather. Uh, mother's grandfather it's kind of strange he didn't last very long um, but then Horenheb came on the scene who is also one of those military commander dudes he took power from uh king tut's wife's grandfather um and this dude went on like he totally went ham on restoring the faith he reopened a bunch of temples uh that akhenaten had closed he put all of his war buddies in charge of the you know the, the temples he put them in in like high clergy positions and also put them in charge of the military and basically he cemented that grip that military and theological grip on the empire again right and he also split his military command in two so he had one commander in the upper nile and one commander in the lower nile so that he can have maximum defensive capability on both sides um and he did so with all of his buddies, right? And he did a really good job at grabbing all that power and solidifying it to where he had no issues, like none whatsoever with either the military or the religious officials because he reinvented it and he stacked it. He basically stacked the courts with all of his friends, um, but he didn't have any heirs. So remember that vizier position that I was telling you about that was relatively new in the Middle Kingdom? So that was Ramses the first. Now, Ramses I only lasted two years on the throne, but he, he basically had, like, his lineage lasted for, like, over 100 years um, as pharaohs thereafter. Uh, and then right after him, it was Seti, uh, which was Ramses' first son, and then Ramses II. And they both clashed with the Hittites in the Battle of Kadesh, which is evidently the largest recorded battle in Bronze Age history. Uh, where there was more than 60,000 soldiers and chariots on the battlefield at the same time. Again, I want to take that with a grain of salt because all of these guys kind of exaggerate a little bit, but um, that's what we know. Uh, and both sides said that they won, um, but in kind of like a mutually assured destruction kind of way, they forged a peace um, treaty that was a lot like what the Mitanni had with Egypt. And then we can get to Ramses. So like, you asked, what's my opinion of Ramses? Well, my opinion of Ramses is really only as good as my opinions of all of the groundwork that was laid for him. Because Ramses wasn't really, I mean, like he built a bunch of temples and, you know, he and structures and stuff like that. And he tries to like do the whole empire building thing again. But really, he's just building on the backs of accomplishments of greater men, in my opinion. Wouldn't you agree well, with that? Apparently, well, yeah, I agree with that's that's kind of what I what I was going with. But um, Ramses is like the guy you think about when you think of Egyptian pharaohs. Mm -hmm. He's um, he's definitely the most well known one besides maybe King Tut, um, and it's because he went on that massive building spree. But apparently, Ramses he. Chiseled, chiseled his name on a lot of stuff that was already built. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was, he was a plagiarist. So he was kind of a plagiarist. Um, but he's... It's interesting that he is placed 
I don't know if this is real or not, but he is often used as the figure in Exodus. Yeah. Um, a lot of historians, or at least Hollywood does, they try to place him as the pharaoh of uh, who had Moses in his court. And... You know, I, I hear so many competing um, uh, uh, thoughts about this because, like, it's they don't uh, the the Torah or the 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 Jewish Bible the the Old Testament really doesn't specifically call out a specific Pharaoh, and this is kind of the trouble with um, you know trying to compare theological or biblical texts, especially Abrahamic biblical texts, uh, against the historical record because it's almost like pseudo um, pseudo historical where you'll get like some events and some people and definitely many places that are real that'll pop up but then in conjunction with those you'll also get these people who are not present anywhere in the historical record anywhere even like whole civilizations or whole kingdoms of peoples that ostensibly don't exist as far as we know right so it's really hard for us to like use you know these biblical texts as a as a like as a defining factor, I know sometime in like 1970s, uh, one of the prime ministers of Israel uh, was the was the dude who floated the idea that um, that the Israelites built the pyramids. You know, that the Israelite slaves built the pyramids, um, and that's super in question. But I think for the most part, it's been debunked, um, mostly because of like a lot of the uh, uh, there was like a lot of tombs that were built. For the slaves, uh, quote unquote slaves that build the temple, uh, the pyramids, uh, and why would you do that for slaves? Uh, I don't want to go down that that particular uh, rabbit hole, but like, you know, to your point, Ramses is the one that gets pointed out as like the bad pharaoh in in those biblical texts, but there's no direct link to him, and they don't call him out by name either. I think a lot of it has to do with just. Since he's the most well-known pharaoh, I think a lot of them just say there is a... Uh, they purposely try to... Because we don't know all the dates that we throw out here. Like, it's really kind of pointless to throw out dates because they're subject to change. So there's, like, always a change in, in like, historical uh, chronology, uh, especially with these ancient civilizations where they're like oh we just figured out that actually all this stuff and stuff happened like 500 years prior to the one we thought it was so right new carbon update. dating methods helped us to figure that yeah, out yeah we, we need to update so yeah i mean even when we were are... doing our, our own independent research when i was looking at your notes and adding mine to it i noticed that our dates were completely different for the same time for like the same yeah epochs you know and i'm like well whatever <laughs> you know yeah there's really no point like going over like oh what's a specific date because ramses i was saying that thutmose was around and um the date i used um was uh like 1400 bc and that probably that could be 1600 bc it could be 1200 bc who it knows could be 1200 bc Mo I, that's just like an estimate given but um ramses there's he could have been 1500 bc he could have been 1300 bc in the time of exodus uh the the time when moses departed the red sea right it's it's hard it's really really hard to guess and uh you know we're not historians especially um, definitely not bible historians either so <laughs> definitely neither or theologians so right 
these dates are just uh, as good as guess as starting po- as, as good as it can get to place these in, in timelines. Yeah. But um, do, do you want to continue talking about Egypt, or do you want to just go into uh, you want to wrap things up? I mean, like at, at this Age. juncture, we're probably already at the end of the Bronze Age, and then all of the next like couple of empires kind of suck. Um, all the next dynasties of Egypt don't don't really live up to it. I mean, we could talk about you know um maybe like persia or assyria's conquests or you know alexander the greats maybe we want to talk about that for a little bit and then that'll be it yeah let's so to make a a a long story really short so um a lot of the dynasties that come so we're at the 20 around the 19th dynasty right now i believe so um the preceding dynasties of egypt are a lot of them are foreign so you have like a, a dynasty from Assyria, a dynasty from Persia, a dynasty from um, the Greeks. So a, a, this is a period where this is the decline of their empire. Um, so a lot, they're they're not they don't have the same prestige that they once had. They're always a really valuable uh, political source just because they're really fertile. Um, there's people recognize that there's a lot of resources like gold and. Um, people use it, other empires use it as a breadbasket and also just the location of like the Nile river. Um, and it's at the, uh, axis of, of, of Africa and Asia, just making a really important place. But I want to talk about the, because something that Ramses the third talks about a lot is fighting the sea people. And, and around <laughs> this period, there is a something apocalyptic happens to basically the entire uh, Near East. So the end of the Bronze Age, basically all the powers, like all the city-states who were on the Mediterranean Sea, um, all the city-states in um, modern-day Syria, Lebanon, um, a lot of the city-states in Iraq, Pretty much everything in like Palestine and Israel, modern day Israel, Palestine, all of them collapse pretty much within a 100 year period, like 100 years together. Like all they, these are wealthy cities, as we were saying before, like these were cities that were built up. They had a lot of trade. They had diverse economies and all these city states just started to implode. And no one really knows why. Like no one really understands. No one knows why there was this um, massive dark age that happened during this this period of time. Like what people there, and there's a lot of theories about what happened. So one theory is that there was climate change that led to famine. Um, you know, another theory is that there was volcanic eruption, um, and another theory that it was there was foreign invasion. It could have been all from together from from aliens. It mm-hmm. was the, the aliens destroyed all these these city states, right? But the people that come and, and um, they actually invade Egypt and they destroy a lot of the civilizations are a group of people that 
modern historians call the Sea People. The Sea People. That's the name. Right. That modern historians gave these people. Right. They couldn't be more creative than that's because the sea that's people. because they were aliens. But this we'll go on. So the Sea People, they invade um they invade like Turkey and Greece and and all these areas um Egypt and they start destroying a lot of the structures there in this, in the trade routes and a lot of the the structures that made society uh happen they destroyed a lot of the economic infrastructure and all of these societies just collapsed and you only the only society that really survives this is Egypt, and they take a huge blow yep. from this. It's not like they are like like they lost their leg basically right. fighting these peoples. Um, and you know, it's funny about that. I, I mentioned this before. If you, if you remember back when Egypt was you know pushing into you know the Upper Nile and into um, you know Nubia, and how they would literally just buy their enemies uh they actually tried that a bunch of times successfully with the sea people they actually purchased the sea people but they kept running out of money <laughs> and, and that's that's uh to your point why they ended up with like they lost their leg but they're they're, they're kind they of like, like bankrupt um, doing that <laughs> yeah they went they went bankrupt fighting the sea peoples and um some people say that they were driven to this region because they were experiencing famines. Um, there, there's a lot of theories and and um, uh, about like who they are and what they and why they why they invaded that part of the world. But um, they unquestionably caused a great deal of turbulence in that area, um, enough to create a dark age. Like you know, the, when we think of dark age, we think of the fall of the Roman Empire. And proceeding 400, 500 years between the fall of the Roman Empire and, and the medieval ages, like 600, 700 AD, um, where people didn't understand, like when where, where people were like, holy shit, like how did, who built these viaducts? Like how could we ever build these roads, these paved roads? Right. And the same thing happened in the Bronze Age where people were like, holy shit like who built that fucking temple right like who, who built that pyramid like it had to have been a god it had to have been aliens like it, it had to it had to have been aliens because society collapsed at this time period like society collapsed between 1100 bc to around 1300 bc just all these city states just were destroyed mm-hmm. we don't know we don't no one can give you a clear explanation why right so that's why we blame the sea people the sea people and the sea people are, they are kind of like the origin story for a lot of historians too. the Philistines mm-hmm. and the Philistines were, you know, they were in the Bible a lot as antagonists to the, to the Israelites, but Philist it's pretty easy to see Philistine, Palestine, that region, right. like the, the, the sea people that emerged and, um, that, that, um, that um, why can I think of this word? Assimilated into that area, eventually became this Palestinians. 
So um, it's just an interesting mystery that I think is that is. Uh, so wait, does really... that make me a half C person? Yes, that makes wow. you a C person. I'm a C person. You're you're a C person. Those are my peoples. Yeah, Danny is half C people. <laughs> That's where they came from. Yep. It's it's like when you ever uh, speak to um, like uh, someone who's like super uh, anti-Palestinian, you'll be like, mm. "We don't even know where these people came from." The C, evidently. Oh, we we don't know who are the Palestinians. No one even knows who they are. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's one of the. I mean, that that's that sounds pretty viable. That their origins could be uh, could be that like just how a lot of people's origin story or part of their origin is the Viking invasions of, of, uh, of Europe. Right. Um, like I have some Norse blood in me. Sure. Yeah. From, from the Vikings ravaging Ireland. But this is the end of the bronze age. Um, as for Egypt, they are not the same in the iron age as they are in the bronze age. Um, they're a client state. And their fate ends really with the, um, I guess the period, the official period ends with, I guess, uh, Cleopatra and Mark Anthony mm-hmm. losing to Julius Caesar, or not Julius Caesar, to Augustus Caesar. And um, I guess their real official history ends, uh, their ancient history ends when the East, when the Eastern Romans lose to the Muslim uh, to the uh, Arab, the Caliphate, Caliphate mm-hmm. who takes over all of Northern Africa, and and after that, Egypt is just broken up into a bunch of like states ran by sultans and local barons and kings, and uh, until they're they're uh, pulled into the Ottoman Empire, and then the Ottoman Empire uh, they get their independence in the Ottoman Empire around the 1800s, and then they're gobbled up by the British. The end. The end. That's it. (laughs) On our next history discussion, we shall be talking about the Assyrian Empire and the the beginnings of the Iron Age. Mm -hmm. So we have just finished our two discussions on Bronze Age societies, starting with with ancient Sumer and the Akkadian Empire, and we just went over ancient Egypt, going over the, the first 20 dynasties in detail. (laughs) <laughs> now, we shall move on to the Iron Age and talk about the societies that link the old world to the new world. Classical music is supposed to play right now. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about maybe smarter. just like, I stayed quiet because I was thinking maybe I'll just like have the intro music, the ex- <laughs> outro music cue <laughs> <you> up. <laughs> some, some classical music is supposed to end right there. All right. Um, all right, rate and review the podcast, guys. And um, yeah, if you want to help the show, make sure you rate and review the podcast on Apple. Number one way to help us grow. Um, let us know if you like these ancient history podcasts. Again, um, this is our first time diving into these subjects. So um, would be interested to hear if you guys are enjoying them or not, or if you like these topics. Uh, we plan on doing this for the rest of the year. Uh, 2020 um maybe maybe even until joe biden is is uh sworn into office um just because 
politics is fucking making me lose my mind right now. <laughs> and uh, I want to jump off a building whenever I go into Twitter and see ple- plebs argue back and forth about God knows what. So uh, taking a breather and indulging in the wonders of ancient society. <laughs> um, all right. Peace, guys. Peace. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.